Adopted by a couple who only hoped to share love and affection with him, one young man grew up and into adulthood to repay his family in the most disturbing manner. Aided by a friend, he committed a heinous act on his unsuspecting parents and left a country in shock when the news of the crime hit the media. And as the months went on, the case took many twists and turns, with justice seeming as though it would never be served. The question left on everyone's mind, though, what causes a child to attack his own parents? This is the disturbing case of the crimes of Ruan van Heerden. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa, from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Ruan entered the lives of Barney and Magda van Heerden when he was a young child. That is to say, he was not their biological son, but he was adopted. But as soon as he had entered the family, he was seen and treated like their own. Together, the three of them had lived in Pier van Reinefeld Park in Pretoria, a middle to upper class suburb known for its great community policing and overall unity. Ruan then went on to attend Ritfle Academy, a private Afrikaans primary school in Pretoria East from grade two to grade seven. It's unclear exactly how or why his path took a turn for the worst, but during his teen years, he began to struggle with drug addiction. This took a definite toll on family life, and Barney and Magda did their absolute best to support him whilst ensuring that he was safe. But eventually, the line had to be drawn, and Ruan was sent to a rehabilitation center in Daar, a small rural town in the Northern Cape. It was here that he would spend the better part of 2019, before returning home to his family at the very end of the year. He was 18 years old. Once he was home, he was eager to meet up with old friends and have a good time. And he had quite an active social life, spending mornings with one group of friends in pubs around Centurion, and then spending evenings with other friends. His parents were, of course, happy to see him and have him back home, and Barney had even obliged in taking him and his 17-year-old female friend and dropping them at the movies and then later picking them up and dropping them at her house so that they could spend more time together. And Barney was glad to have his son back. But little did he know that later that evening, things would spiral into complete horror and chaos. Unbeknownst to his parents, a short amount of time before he enacted the devastating chain of events, he was drinking at a local pub, Thirsty's Sports Bar. This bar was about a kilometer away from his parents' home. And of course, he wasn't alone. According to the manager of the pub, he was with a girl who looked like she was around 18 or 19 years old with long blonde hair. The two had arrived around 11pm and they had sat outside. They were also talking to other patrons at the venue 
as it had appeared that Ruan had gone to school with some of the individuals who were seated inside, and so he was popping in and out as he was having conversations with them. And at around half past 11, both Ruan and the girl had left. It's not entirely clear at which point another young man had joined the pair, but the three of them had then made their way back to the Van Heerden home. Ruan, who had never had a key to the home prior to that incident, had actually taken Magda's key from her key holder earlier that evening, after they had had an argument, but more on that just now. And so the three had arrived at the home and gained entry just past midnight. The home where Barney was fast asleep in the bedroom and Magda was sitting in the living room watching TV. On the way in, Ruan's friend and accomplice had grabbed a golf club from the golf bag in the garage. He had then proceeded to the bedroom where he had hit the sleeping man multiple times, so severely that Barney's arm was broken at the end of the ordeal. Whilst that was happening, Ruan had taken a knife from the kitchen, headed to the living room and stabbed his mother 36 times. She already suffered from lupus and she had trouble walking prior to the incident. She sustained injuries and stab wounds to multiple parts of her body, mostly her abdomen. But Ruan wasn't done there. As he left her to bleed out, he had raced to the bedroom where he had proceeded to stab frantically at his father. Magda was 49 years old at the time and Barney was 54 years old. Before leaving the premises, Ruan had taken Barney's wallet, which had his credit cards in it, Machda's handbag, six packs of cigarettes, cell phones and cash along with a hard drive that was connected to the CCTV camera and the weapons that they had used during the assault. Namely the kitchen knife and the golf club. He had then left in his father's car a Nissan NP200 Bucky. In the aftermath of the attack, the Van Heerden's domestic worker, whom I'm assuming stayed on the property, had rushed to the control room of Sikh Security, the local security company in the area. Their control room was about a block away from the Van Heerden home. They were the first, therefore, to arrive on the scene and they were met by Barney and Magda, who were both conscious but had sustained multiple wounds. Miraculously, they had both survived the attack but were left in utter shock. At this point, Magda was airlifted via emergency helicopter to Mill Park Hospital in Johannesburg. She was initially in the ICU unit for a longer period of time, however, Barney was later discharged and sent home. Some of Magda's stab wounds were so deep that they had damaged her intestines, and it appeared that she would need to receive dialysis three times a week for the rest of her life. Her health would be up and down over the next few months, with septicemia even being suspected, but more on that later. Whilst the Van Heerden parents were in the hospital, Ruan, on the other hand, absconded, but was later arrested the very next day. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, it appeared. He had used his father's credit card for his Uber trips and to shop at stores in Aliwal North. A police spokesperson, Matapelo Peters, stated that Ruan was arrested in an Uber about 600 kilometers away in Aliwal North in the Eastern Cape. 
he was alone at the time of his arrest. Although he had left the family home in his father's vehicle, he had later abandoned the Bucky on the outskirts of Tembisa, a predominantly black township on the East Rand. After his arrest, he was charged with two counts of attempted murder, one count of robbery with aggravated circumstances, and one count of car theft. According to the charge sheet against Ruan, he acted with a common purpose in the attack of his parents. In plain terms, this meant that he did not act alone, he acted with others, with the intention of causing harm to someone else. He had also been careful to attempt to cover his tracks by taking the hard drive that contained the CCTV footage of the night with him when he left. A hard drive that was, for some reason, left in his father's abandoned vehicle in Tembisa. All I can assume here is that he thought that both the car and the evidence would just disappear without a trace. At his first court appearance, no family members were to be seen, obviously. He then applied to legal aid for free legal representation. Later that day, the unknown girl who was with him on the night, but who did not play a role in the murders, was arrested in Vatakluf. The following day, she appeared in the special children's court on two charges of attempted murder, one charge of robbery with aggravating circumstances, and one charge of car theft. She was only 17 years old, so her identity was not disclosed to the media nor the public. She was detained in a juvenile detention center for a few days before being released into the care of her mother. But the plot thickened because at that point in time, a third suspect was brought into question. So who exactly was this mystery man and accomplice, you may ask? Well, he was Colson William Phelps, 20 years old at the time, from Ferry Glen in Pretoria. He was arrested at the Grove Shopping Centre where he was working as a waiter. He too was charged with two counts of attempted murder, one count of robbery with aggravating circumstances, and one count of vehicle theft. Both Colson and the 17-year-old female appeared in court together, which was held as closed proceedings due to the fact that there was a minor present. Colson's parents vehemently supported him throughout the initial court appearances, stating to the media that they were with him in every possible way. Ruan, on the other hand, had dropped his bail application as the only address that he would be able to provide to the court, should his application be successful, was that of his parents, who also happened to be his victims in the crime that he was being charged with. So yeah, that obviously would not have worked. Colson's bail application proceeded, however later it was suspended and postponed after Colson claimed that he had mental health problems. His parents, who were eager to do whatever they could for him, had consulted with a psychologist after his arrest, who had then contacted a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist later found that he was psychotic, apparently at one point of his life, and he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Colson had then stated, My arrest and detention was a strong wake-up call, and I realized I needed my psychiatric medication and treatment. 
His parents and his legal team had agreed that Colson needed follow-up consultations and possibly even hospitalization. It came to light that three months before his arrest, he had attempted to wean himself off his medication as he believed that he would be fine without it. That in itself is actually not as uncommon as you may think. Later in that same statement, it was disclosed that Colson was a waiter in the Grove Shopping Center and that he was a trusted employee who worked hard to earn the limited income that he did. It was divulged that he depended on his parents to provide accommodation as well as medical aid. To solidify his bail application, he had further elaborated that. None of us can afford to forfeit my bail. I will also not inflict further trauma on my family by fleeing and forfeiting the bail money, which we will have to scrape together. However, as I mentioned, the bail application was suspended and the court decided to put him on the waitlist for psychiatric evaluation at Vescopi's Psychiatric Hospital in Pretoria. And therefore, the case was postponed. And then the pandemonium of 2020 struck the world. The wait became months and Colson's parents and legal team were worried that even though he was receiving his medication in hospital, it wasn't properly monitored, and they feared that he may attempt to kill himself again, as he apparently had tried in 2019, allegedly. And so, on the 31st of March 2020, the judge granted bail of 8,000 rand to Colson Phelps and warned him not to travel anywhere or interfere with state witnesses. And so he waited for a bed at Vescopi's, from the comfort of his own home. And would you know, almost a year of waiting later, and still no bed was available. Sorry, what? This led to the magistrate, Tandi Taledi, issuing the following warning, as she said, If I hear with the next appearance that exposure has not been provided to the defense or that there is no bed in best copies yet, the case will be removed from the role. And a month later, that is exactly what happened. The case was dropped and the charges were removed due to improper delays by the state. Unfortunately, I'm not even kidding. Immediately, Barney sought a protection order as he feared the inevitability of his son being released again. He had said, initially in Afrikaans, but I have translated it. The state, the court, has absolutely failed us as victims. We have already lived in fear. I am now sitting with a child who poses a life-threatening threat to me and everyone, and is being released despite warnings from the magistrate due to poor investigative work and poor preparation. It later turned out, however, that Barney's parental instincts did not leave him, no matter how horrific Ruan's actions were. What exactly am I talking about, you may ask? Well, after that day of court proceedings, Barney had told Ruan not to contact him again. However, later that very evening, Ruan had pitched up on their doorstep, as he had absolutely nowhere else to go. And like all the times before, Barney could not turn away his child and leave him on the street. And so he had let Ruan stay in the garage and use the outside bathroom. 
because he was still way too scared to have him living within the home. I mean, he was brave, I guess, for even letting him in the vicinity. Barney had also appointed an armed guard to protect them from their son. But that was obviously no way to live, as you can imagine. And so Barney got Ruan admitted to a rehabilitation center, which he of course paid for. And mind you, rehabs are expensive. However, even with Ruan in a rehabilitation center, there was still a constant fear in Barney's life that he would get out or be released and come back to finish off what he had started. Life after the attack was incredibly difficult for both Magda and Barney, both psychologically and of course physically. Whilst Magda's physical health was very touch and go, Barney's mental health deteriorated. He became unable to sleep in dark rooms, constantly having flashbacks to that horrendous attack. And so, with Ruan back in a rehabilitation center that Barney was paying for, and the case struck off the roll, it appeared that justice would not be served. That was until two weeks later when the case received written instruction and permission from the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, for it to be placed back on the court roll once again. Yeah, I know, right? I felt like I was getting whiplash from all the twists and turns in this case. So it was April of 2021, and the go-ahead had finally been given. With this new charge sheet, the name of the then-minor girl was left out, as the charges against her were withdrawn. Upon hearing the news of the reinstated charges, Barney had said, I am in an emotional split. On the one hand, he remains my child. On the other hand, he is the accused, in a very serious case. One remembers that night, how hard I was beaten, and that I would have been dead if I had not fought back. It remains sad. The emotions of a parent are absolutely still there. As proceedings began again and Ruan made his first appearance back in court in October of 2021, Barney was glad to see that his son looked better. However, it was bittersweet as Magda had been in the ICU for the past five weeks at that point. Barney had said, Her intestine was damaged badly in the attack. She had to get a stoma bag at the time. The doctors now tried to attach the bowel, but there were complications. She is doing better, but the emotional and physical toll of the attack is heavy. On the 30th of October 2021, Magda van Heerden passed away. This was not only a tragic event for the van Heerden family, but it also resulted in a change of one of the charges against Colson and Ruan. Remember I had mentioned that Magda's health had been touch and go? Well, after the attack, Magda had spent more time in the hospital than at home, left with a stoma bag and dialysis three times a week. It was after an attempt to repair her damaged intestines that her body had weakened so much to a point where she could no longer fight the battle. Ruan was determined to go to his mother's funeral. However, Barney had expressed the notion that he did not think it was a good idea. And I gotta agree with him there. On the 5th of November, Barney laid his wife of 27 years to rest, with the service taking place at the Pierre van Reinefeld Community Church. 
His final message to her was that love never perishes. The service concluded with Bon Jovi's Bed of Roses, one of the couple's favourite songs. Ruan was not present. And as one chapter ended, another one began, with the court case finally resuming, with Colson having spent the 30 days as required at the Vescopi's psychiatric hospital. Eventually... Vescopis did not agree with his initial legal counsel on the counts of his diminished mental health status. According to the report, clinical interviews were conducted with Colson and his general behavior was observed and monitored. He was also physically examined and had both psychosocial and psychological evaluations. The final report had read, The given history of a psychiatric diagnosis and management thereof is noted, but it does not affect points C and D below. Points C and D follow with, The accused is able to follow court proceedings and contribute significantly to his defense. During the alleged crime, there was no mental illness and no intellectual inability that could affect the accused's ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And so, after the evaluation, the court would hear that although Colson was willing to plead guilty in a plea agreement, he did not agree with the proposed sentence. So at this point, his case was then separated from Ruan's. After the death of Magda, the one charge against both of the men was escalated from an attempted murder charge to a murder charge. This was due to the fact that it was discovered by forensic pathologists after Magda's autopsy that the initial attack eventually led to her death. Ruan also faced one charge of fraud related to him misrepresenting the permission he had to use his father's bank cards that were stolen during the attack. Ruan pleaded guilty and a plea and sentencing agreement was entered into. Basically, in simple terms, a plea and sentencing agreement means that the defendants plead guilty to certain charges and after all mitigating and aggravating circumstances have been taken into account, an appropriate sentence is agreed upon. As this court case had dragged on for so many months, reaching this conclusion was the most cost-effective solution for many, including the taxpayers, whose taxes go towards infrastructure and manpower. So it's basically like a contractual outcome with an almost guaranteed sentence that is settled on much quicker. In May of 2022, Ruan pleaded guilty to the charge of murder of Magda, as well as the charge of attempted murder of Barney. He also pleaded guilty to a charge of robbery with aggravating circumstances. He said in court, I'm sorry, Dad, I didn't want it to turn out that way. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison and will be eligible for parole after serving at least 50% of his sentence. This agreement was reached with the state after consultation with the only remaining victim, Ruan's father, as well as the investigating officer in the case. The compelling and substantial circumstances in mitigation of the sentence included mitigating aspects such as Ruan being only 18 years old at the time of the attack, 
the fact that he was a drug addict, his deep remorse over his actions, and the responsibility he had taken for those actions amongst others. In terms of aggravating factors, those included the fact that he attacked his own adoptive parents, that Machte suffered for many months after the attack, eventually succumbing to complications from her injuries, and of course, the severe trauma that both Barney and Machte experienced, once again amongst other factors. Barney was forced to make peace with the sentence, stating that there was no other option. However, he had also said, My heart feels broken. It's a difficult experience. On the one hand, I want to put my arms around Ruan and say everything is going to be okay. On the other hand, I'm so angry, so mad at him. That was not what Marta and I planned for him, his life, to end like this. Barney's victim impact statement during court proceedings was heartbreaking, to say the least. He spoke of Marta and how she had struggled after the attacks with health issues. He also explained how difficult it was for him to look after her. He had said, My life changed drastically as I had to take care of her and had no knowledge of nursing care. She was not able to move around on her own. This had led to medical care being hired, like a professional nurse and a physiotherapist. More hospital visits and three sessions of dialysis a week, which all took its toll financially after their medical aid had depleted. And this only added to the anxiety that they were both experiencing. His mental state and Machta's health made it virtually impossible for him to continue working. He stated that he lived in constant fear and anxiety. He struggled to sleep in the dark and suffered from daily pain in his left arm, which was broken during the attack as well as the pain from the wounds inflicted on his legs and head. And this physical and emotional pain was just further intensified by the nightmare of the court proceedings and the shocking turn of events when the matter was initially struck off the roll due to poor investigation by the South African Police Service. And in those tragic turn of events, Barney had lost his wife of 27 years. And with the pandemonium of 2020, he was not even able to be with her in the hospital. I cannot imagine the absolute turmoil that this one poor man has been through. It's more than anyone should have to ever go through. He would later state, I was left a childless widower. So although Ruan's case was closed, Colson Phelps had not yet been convicted or sentenced. As he did not agree to the previous sentence terms, his court case continued and he pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of Barney and guilty to a charge of robbery with aggravating circumstances. Colson was sentenced to five years in prison on the charge of attempted murder and 15 years on the charge of robbery with aggravating circumstances, of which two years were suspended. These sentences were to be served concurrently. So basically, he was sentenced to an effective 13 years in prison. The factors in mitigation of his sentence, he was not a rebellious child, that he was well aware of the terrible consequences of his actions and regretted them, and that the attack was a deviation of his nature as a person. When looking at his childhood, it was divulged that he was only educated up until grade 10, and was thus physically, socially, and emotionally dependent on his parents. He was also said to be socially 
mentally and emotionally underdeveloped. He had a history of psychological problems and was diagnosed with bipolar depression and adult attention deficit disorder. He had also allegedly been admitted to Denmark Psychiatric Hospital a few months before the incident after an impulsive overdose after attempting to wean himself off his psychiatric medication. His experience in detention was apparently life-changing. As he had previously lived in the safe environment of his highly ethical parents who were well known within religious circles. Colson is not the focus of my episode, but whether or not mental health issues truly had a role to play in the heinous crime he committed, I believe that he is an incredibly impressionable individual. He could have also lacked the ability to develop within a social setting as he was homeschooled for a great portion of his schooling career. Now, don't get me wrong, there is absolutely nothing wrong with homeschooling, but it is vital that children are allowed the opportunity to interact with peers of their own age group as some lessons can only be experienced, not taught. In that sense, spending so much time with his parents would mean that the behaviors he picked up on and learned would be strongly linked to them. Whilst researching this case, he definitely struck me as someone who could be easily manipulated by others in order to please them or to appear to them in a certain way. That, however, does not reduce his responsibility in the crimes committed. According to court documents, he was also a first-time offender and had indicated early on that he was willing to admit guilt. His legal team had thus requested that he be able to serve his sentence in a Pretoria prison. This would be near to his support system. They also hoped that he would be allowed to complete his schooling and be allowed to take his psychiatric medication in jail. Their requests were agreed upon. Before the door to the detention cell behind Colson had closed, his female friend had kissed him on the forehead and held his head in her hands. So, at the end of the day, justice had been served, I guess. I never feel as though these sentences can rectify much, as the damage is already done and the pain caused to both the victims as well as the families of both the perpetrators and the victims often never goes away. That's why I think it's vital to always look deeper into the driving forces behind these crimes in order to aid prevention of future similar incidents. So what drives a son to try and kill his own parents? Well, let's understand a little bit more about the mind behind the madness. This is not the first case that I've covered that has looked at the crime of parasite. The murder of one's mother, father, or both. I previously covered the case of Phoenix Racing Cloud Tehran, who killed her mother, matricide, with the help of her boyfriend. I also more recently covered the case of the Lauter siblings, who killed both of their parents and were apparently under the spell of the mastermind Matthew Naidu. So, Here's the thing about parasite. There are generally three groups of motives, namely the presence of mental illness or personality disorders, the presence of previous childhood abuse, and the presence of ulterior motives. Now, according to the research I did and the articles I read, there were no psychological evaluations conducted or at least made public by Ruan or his legal team. This doesn't necessarily mean that mental illness had no part to play, 
but rather I cannot speculate as there are no key pieces of evidence to back up this theory. So that would bring us to childhood abuse, where once again I cannot speculate, but I will say that all the reports from friends and family members spoke to the great parents that Barney and Magda were. And Ruan himself never mentioned anything about childhood abuse or neglect. With those potential motives struck off the list, that leaves the potential of ulterior motives being present. Like I said, these are the main groups. There are many different motives for murder. These are just the most common ones. Ulterior motives are usually behind the murder of parents committed by children who are nearing adulthood or who are adults. Ruan was 18 years old and he was classified as an adolescent. Adolescents are still developing with less ability to control their emotions and less life experience in general. In Ruan's case, he was incredibly dependent on his parents, still hadn't finished school and didn't really have a job or money to his name. In his eyes, his parents owed him whatever he wanted and when he was admonished for just taking it, this caused resentment to grow. Couple this with a lack of empathy due to years and years of getting away without consequences and this was a recipe for disaster. But I'll go deeper into that very soon. As I mentioned earlier, Ruan had been in a rehabilitation center, Neverfontaine Empowerment Center. It was here that he had met Robert Green, who was a manager there at the time. They had apparently hit it off and became friends, or something to that effect. Robert, however, had then resigned due to accusations from a patient in the center. He had claimed that Robert had assaulted him and chained him in a room to the wall with the window open and only a hessian cloth to cover himself with to keep the bitter cold out. According to the same source, Ruan was present during these events. The center closed its doors shortly after, unable to come back from that scandal presumably. Right, so that left Rob unemployed and shortly after Ruan out of rehab. And so the two of them came up with what they thought was an ingenious plan. They were going to open up a rehabilitation center. The only flaw in the plan? Well, they lacked the funding to do so. Yeah, kind of a major spoke in the wheel if you ask me. So Ruan decided that Barney, his father, would definitely be able to assist. And so in October of 2019, he had approached his father with Rob on a guest farm near Da'ar to discuss their plans. He had then asked for a quarter of a million rand, 250,000 rand, to be precise, to open the center. Barney heard them out, but when it was clear that there was no proper business plan in place, an argument broke out. This had escalated and as Barney had left to get into his vehicle, Rob had allegedly attempted to assault him. Barney had pushed him off with his car door and had driven away. Unfortunately, Barney was used to this behavior as he and Magda had long dealt with the knock-on effects that drugs had on their only son. He was described by multiple sources as a spoiled 
brat. He would blame his parents for the situation he was in on many occasions. Anyway, a few days later, Rob and Juan had traveled to Cape Town via bus. At that point, Rob began to harass the Van Heerdens for money to assist in caring for Juan. They had allegedly sent him 20,000 rand. The two of them had stayed in Cape Town until December, which is the point where Rob had bought him a bus ticket upon his insistence, and Ruan had travelled back home, arriving just in time for New Year's Day. The day he arrived back home, he had apparently changed his WhatsApp status to I'm back boys, let's party. And true to his alleged personality of being a spoiled brat, he was soon making demands of his parents. Earlier that very day of the attack, he had been admonished by Marta for stealing 200 rand from his father's wallet. And he did not take kindly to being called out. And there was also a comment that had been made by a manager of a rehabilitation center he had been in. I'm not entirely sure if it was Rob or not, as the article did not state a name. However, this individual had told him that Barney and Marta wanted to give him back up for adoption. With his recent admonishing fresh in his mind, and the earliest seed that was planted about the supposed family rejection, which was highly inaccurate and untrue, a dangerous idea took root. Besides the mental train of thought that preceded this horrific attack, the very obvious effect of drug use and abuse must be taken into account. Although it was not clear whether Ruan was under the influence during the attack, the short to long-term effects of constant substance abuse wreaks havoc on not only the abuser's life, but those around them. More than 7 million people suffer from illicit drug use disorder, and 1 in 4 deaths can be attributed to alcohol, tobacco, and illicit or prescription drug use. Ruan started using drugs in his teenage years, and although he was still in school, his behavior was out of control. This is not uncommon within many teenage substance abusers. Besides the seemingly obvious effects of substance abuse, like craving more of the substance in question, becoming addicted to the high or the feeling of euphoria that the substance gives you, the chemistry of a user's brain is also altered, interfering with their ability to make decisions. But of course, there are many factors at play here and substance abuse alone cannot be held responsible for the crime. However, the years of substance abuse not only takes its toll on the physical health and brain development of the user, but it's evident that it affected the relationship between Ruan and his family. There were multiple reports that stated that Ruan was a bit of a spoiled brat, in the sense that he always got away with whatever he had done. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have children, so I don't have any true idea of how difficult it is to raise a child properly. Never mind a child who has started engaging in high-risk behavior, like substance abuse. And I'm not here to judge any parent. I just want to share a bit of the psychological development that occurs as a result of the different parenting techniques put into place. In this case, the lack of discipline or harsh consequences continuously can have multiple effects on a child's development. Firstly, there can be a distinct diminished ability to empathize and understand others. This stems from the constant desire of the child to focus on solely their own needs and wants, 
disregarding everyone else. In younger children, this is common because they are still learning the ways of the world. But by the time they reach adolescence, empathetic understanding is a vital component in healthy development. Next, resistance to authority is common too. Because if the child grows up thinking that their own parents don't need to be listened to or obeyed at times, then why do other people? Unfortunately, the reasons that seem like basic logic to us as adults is still a work in progress for the developing mind. These negative attributes are intensified, particularly when substance abuse is involved. Now, substance abuse is not my particular field of focus, but it's evident and I'm sure you can ask any family member of a drug abuser that it often feels like an uphill battle. Some people are able to quit cold turkey, go through withdrawals and rehab and continue to lead a drug-free life again, obviously with an intense amount of hard work and commitment. But others can't seem to shake the addiction. And on their downward spiral, they often take those around them with them. It's not uncommon to hear about users who have sold their family's belongings or even threatened family members. And unfortunately, something has got to give at some point. This was evident in Elaine Pucky's sad case, where she was forced to kill her drug-addicted son who she was terrified of and who had constantly abused her. When things escalate, it can come to a them or me situation. But don't be put off by these dark narratives. It doesn't mean that someone can't change, that someone can't beat an addiction. Like I previously mentioned, there are many different approaches. And more times than not, it'll take multiple attempts and the strongest desire and willpower to facilitate a permanent change. Psychologically, a change in thought patterns and behaviours is also fully possible if the person is able to view their actions in an objective manner, to truly understand the effect that their behaviour has on those around them. The first step to dealing with any issue is to acknowledge it. I mean, that's why so many different types of therapies exist, from talk therapy to art therapy. There are many different approaches to deal with matters of the mind. And that's one of the main reasons I do what I do here. Yes, I want to spread awareness about the tragic ends to these victims' lives so that their deaths will not be in vain. But I also want to spread awareness about the road, signs and actions that led up to the tragic events so that perhaps a future crime can be prevented. Maybe a sign can be noticed sooner rather than later. Maybe behavior can be altered before it becomes a maladjustment. And maybe, just maybe, the focus on the mental health of a developing mind can be magnified. And until then, I will continue to be here and do this. For every victim who didn't survive. For Magda van Heerden. For every victim that is left alive but Scott, for Barney, von Hirden, and for those whose names will not be forgotten and whose stories will be heard. I will do this for them, and I will do this for so many more. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I am positive each and every single one of you are. Bye!